0: This is a section of Luke 8, beginning at verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. That is why I, Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to my house, because my only daughter, a girl of 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him, and I was there. I had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal me. I came up behind Jesus and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately my bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power is gone from me. Seeing that I could not go unnoticed, I came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, I told why I had touched him and how I had been instantly healed. And then Jesus said to me, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from my house to give me news of my child. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to me, don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. When Jesus arrived at my house, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, James, myself, and my wife. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for my little girl. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at Jesus, knowing that she was dead, but he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her mother and I were astonished, but he ordered us not to tell anyone what had happened.
1: Hi, uh, my name's Carl, and my wife and I have been um, uh, becoming a part of Westwood since... I think in the spring is when we started coming. When I was 17, um, I was, well, this will explain everything. I had never been on a date. And whatever image that conjures of a 17-year-old who's never been on a date, that's accurate. So, my friends, a couple of youth leaders, actually, um, unbeknownst to me, had conspired to get me on my first date. And so there was four of us. There was um, myself and my friend Greg. There was this new girl, Carol, and then my friend Joe. And anyhow, so right there in front of me, Greg and Joe with Carol planned my first date for that coming Friday night. They didn't need to ask if I was busy. They knew I wasn't. So, So that's how I got my first date. And of course, I'm very nervous, you know, and because my friends had explained and told me a little bit um, that if things go well, when you take Carol back to her house and walk her to the door, you get to what? Kiss her goodnight. You do the math. If I'm 17 and i been on a date, never kissed anybody. And so I was, you know, wanting to put on my best behavior, or look my best, and so I started getting ready on Tuesday. Um, and then Friday comes, and it's after her game, after the, my school was playing her school in a basketball game, and she was a pom-pom girl, and um, I had a 64 Chevy truck at the time, and the passenger door was broken. And so we came around to my side and had to you know, slide in, and she took the box. I didn't know this. I was kind of thinking it'd be the other way around. But she took the box of her clothes and her stuff. And she slid that in first, which meant then she would be second, and then I would be next to her. Things are going wonderfully. Um, I couldn't have even planned for that, but that's great, right? I mean, this is great. So now we're, we're driving. We go to the date and go to a movie or something. But I don't care about any of that. I, all, all I care about is going her house. Now I forgot this part. First story first or true story. I was so focused on getting to her house I ran without even slowing down the red light at Colfax and Kipling. Anyhow we get to her getting <laughs> closer to her house now. And it you know my thought is I, I don't I mean I can't just how awkward. I need to give some indication right of what I'm feeling and what's hopefully going to happen. And so my thought is, why don't I just put my arm around her, because she's sitting right next to me. And so, you know, I told my brain, I, you know, your brain kind of rehearses those things. One thing I guess I didn't think through is that if you very quickly throw your elbow up, you will catch somebody under their eye right here. Because I thought speed would be on my side if I could do it like, you know, like that. She wouldn't even know it's coming. You know, so that that's how I pictured it, just going like that and yet and I hit her right there under her eye. Um, when we got to her door, I I got to kiss her goodnight, my first kiss, all that. Words would have been no more effective like, like, how awkward. I think it would have been worse if we're... And, of course, I shouldn't have hit her under the eye. Let's pretend that didn't happen. But going down, hey, Carol, I wanted you to know, so, you know, I'm kind of awkward about kissing you, so what I think I'll do is I'll just put my arm around you. I don't know if you know what that means, but that means I kind of think I like you. And and just so you're ready, when we get to your house and, you know, get to the door, I'm, I'm gonna. I'd like for my lips to touch your lips. Would that be okay? So, you know... Words aren't even all that much helpful. All that we needed was some non-verbal communication, which is our conversation today. Because it made me think, as I was thinking about, you know, I'd been asked to be part of this series on prayer, for some reason I kept thinking, you know, prayer is the only time in almost all of our human communications where we rely zero on our nonverbal behaviors. So lots and lots and lots of studies have been done, and they all come within this range, that 70 to 90% of all human interaction and communication is nonverbal. And that made me wonder, can you pray nonverbally? Can you pray without... Using words. The passage that we heard out of the story in Jesus' life in Luke 8 was, I, I didn't change any of the words except for the pronouns. That's the only thing I changed. Because I want us to remember these are real stories. These are real people who had unbelievable feelings. And it is my sort of thesis, I guess, or theory on that passage, that almost all the communication had nothing to do with words. Here's how we see it go down. First, um, he fell at Jesus' feet. So we get a little information about who he is. He's Jairus, and he's the... It just says this, and every word counts, you see. Every word has some intent, and it says Jairus was the leader of the synagogue, And it's important you know that before you see and hear that he has fallen at Jesus' feet. Our cultural setup is is slightly different, but in 2,000 years ago, in the Middle Eastern culture, it was called an honor culture. And everything is about, about honors primarily for the person that is above you socially. And when you're at the near top of a social scenario because of your wealth, your status, your family. Others may come and fall at your feet, but this would be my my thought. I don't think Jairus has ever fallen at anybody's feet, but he falls at Jesus' feet. And then it says that he pleads. Now, you're thinking, well, plead, that I mean, that's words, isn't it? Well, maybe there's some words. But the words are not what's important here. What's important is the pleading. Because tone and volume will change everything. In fact, I think often some of the greatest misunderstanding I've had as I've read the Scripture is I didn't attention to what the tone was. How many times have I read something in the scripture and it sounded like God was mad at me? His tone, I often can hear God's voice as deep, you know, bass sounding and he's at least a little irritated with what I've done but sometimes he's just angry. But most of the time he's not. Most of the time that's not the tone that Jesus has with us. That's not the tone of the scripture. So it says that he pleaded. I think that's about tone and volume, and I think that's what's communicating, because we don't know what words he says. It just says he pleads. The words aren't even that important, because we probably get the idea. He's falling at his feet. I'll give you an example. When my son was little, um, he, he was always getting in trouble. Just like, I guess all boys. And when I came home, he would often know that he was going to be in trouble. Mom had maybe called, or he just knew I was going to see it. Whatever, he knew he's in trouble, which meant he went to hide. Right? So that was his instinct. He goes to hide, and so I'm trying to find him. And so here's what I would say: I say, Brandon, come here. Now, Just that tone and the volume tells him, I want him to be in my proximity so I can hurt him. I want want to hurt him, I want to spank him, because I'll feel better then. And he can hear it in my voice. But, but, But just, I'll just, same words, but I want to take him to go get ice cream. Hey Brandon, come here. Totally different, right? He's not scared. He's not defending. He comes up close. Sometimes I would use that voice and then I would spank him. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. Um, How you say something is 70% more important than what you say. How does that work? The last, or the... The other character in the story is this woman. And it says that she touched him. That's all we know that she did. She touched Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that our actions are not coupled with an intention. Obviously, it, Jesus is getting jostled around. There's it's just tons of people, right? Lots of people touch. Her touch was different. It said she had had an issue of bleeding, of menstruating for twelve years. One of the things I believe both Jairus and the woman held in common, and I believe is often at the at the bottom of a nonverbal prayer is the feeling of being desperate. I think they were desperate. So what does desperate prayer look like? I'm sure it's more than this, but I, th- I think it has at least these two qualities. One, a desperate prayer is courageous. Jairus was willing to lose all of his status in life because he was that desperate. He was willing to do what culturally and what in good, his good manners should not have allowed him to do, but he did it anyhow because he was that desperate. It takes courage. The woman with the issue of blood is courage at a whole new level. If you're familiar with the story of, of, of the scriptures, you, you'll know about a, a, a group of people that God sort of wanted to be his showcase of how God worked with all people. And so they had two different kinds of laws. Maybe you've heard of this, the, of the law. So there was a moral law, but there was ceremonial law. And ceremonial law almost always has to do with God trying to tell the story of the entire Bible It is life and death. It is life and death. And so what would happen is when a woman would have her menstruation, she would become unclean. And unclean is is really a bad translation because it sounds like something she's done bad or she's wrong or she's being punished, and that's not it at all. What's happened is God's telling the story of a life that was lost, a life that had been potential but now isn't and so her, her being outside of the camp reinforced that story it's easy to comprehend in our culture if you've ever known a couple who was struggling with infertility and every month the reminder every month the reminder that there is not new life in them but new life is leaving or possible life is leaving. That's ceremonial. But as often happens, when a, when a story is a good story to be told, it, it, can, it can be lost. We can lose the meaning of a story, and just following the rules become what's most important. And that's where we find this story. Because unclean touching unclean made that unclean. And so the woman was prohibited from being with others. She was prohibited from touching. So here's what we know: we know she was probably single. We know she was at least ostracized, if not, um, you know, somehow alone with her family. My hunch is she didn't have many friends, but she's desperate. And she reaches out and touches Jesus at the risk of being seen, violating a really high social protocol. She showed amazing courage. The other characteristic that I want to remind us of, that along with courage comes humility. And humility is not thinking badly of yourself. It's not, oh, I'm I'm nothing. I'm no good at something. That's not humility. Humility is understanding that of myself, I don't have the resources. I can't do this. Humility is simply saying, I can't do this. We assume with Jairus, he'd probably tried everything to get his daughter well, and we know with the woman that she had exhausted every resource she has. I find it... Helpful that Jesus was their last resort. Jesus wasn't their first resort, their first choice. Most likely he was their last resort. Why Why is it that in my life, prayer is hard for me? I know, you know, I was a pastor for 30-something years, 35 years. It's somehow supposed to be easier for me. I struggle. And I, 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 I was trying to think through why. And So I wrote some things down. I wrote some things down that remind me that so often in my life, Jesus is my last choice, not my first choice. One is that I'm afraid of being disappointed. I've I've had some prayers that are decades old. And I don't want to say it again. I don't want to say it again and, and somehow feel some hope rise in me. My deepest... I would say that the issue which has most affected my life as a child and all the way through adulthood to now has been around the, the idea of intimacy. I, I, I mean, we can spend a lot of time on that, but I desperately, I desperately want to be intimate. And it absolute, absolutely terrifies me. And I don't know that I have many more skills today than I did when I was 10 years old. And praying is intimate. It's it's different than how I maybe would speak to other people. My my feelings, my connection with my wife is not the same as I have with other people. And I don't have the same kind of fights with other people that I have with April. Because in almost every fight, here's what we've learned. I got scared. Something she said or did reminded me or or scratched at something, some scab I have about being intimate, about being close. Sometimes I I feel dumb praying because I haven't I haven't done anything else that would make it look like I should pray or would be praying. Or that, I don't know, I got this story that if I'm good, God's more likely to hear me. And when I know I haven't been very good, I don't think he's even going to hear me. I say this, and this has been helpful to me in my life. You're going to have you're gonna to have to wrestle with and make peace with the idea that you're a hypocrite. I'm a hypocrite. I tell people I love Jesus. I've told people I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm all in on Jesus, I'm all in on the scriptures. But if you spend a couple of weeks with me, if you spent a couple of hours with me and you could hear what's going on inside my head, if you could see some of the things I do, you would go, oh my gosh, I don't get that he's a Christian. And that happens to all of us. I um, I don't know if you are a Chick-fil-A fan. Um, I like them. I think they're a, a tad expensive, but okay, we'll, I'll move on. But they have a diet lemonade that is unbelievable. And you know, how you, you know how you compare something it's good when it's a diet, it's because it tastes like the non-diet version? That's what that is. The diet lemonade is amazing. I love it. Do you know what's even better? <coughs> they will put ice cream in it for you. <laughs> they have a thing, I think they call it a freeze or something, where they take lemonade and ice cream and they mix it all together. It's delicious. And so the last time I wanted to get one of those... And I've been trying to cut down on. I've trying to. I've been really good. And April wasn't with me, so I thought I'd get the ice cream. <laughs> and then I told the girl right as she was walking, "Hey, hey, can you make that with the diet lemonade?" This, is, I mean, I, that makes no sense. Like diet lemonade and ice cream. That, thats who I am. My life is a huge contradiction. I am. I am diet lemonade, and I am ice cream. I, I love Jesus with all my heart, and I can ignore him for a long period of time. Uh, Rick and I were laughing. I was When you're a pastor, and you go to uh, lunch with somebody, especially somebody in your, you know, your congregation, I can almost guarantee you're gonna pray before that meal. Like it's just the thing, you know. I, I've done it a thousand times. Now if I'm out by myself, or I'm out with somebody who doesn't know I'm a pastor, or doesn't really care that I'm a pastor, I may not pray. I'm not praying because I have some great motive. A lot of times I'm praying because somebody's watching me, and I get paid to be a good Christian. I was even thinking, how many times have I said, a, you know, said the blessing at the meal? But gratitude and thankfulness was really not what was bubbling up in me. Usually it's how am I being perceived, but it could be other things. What I love about Jesus, one of the things I love, is that it doesn't matter to him. Jesus is not keeping a long catalog of all the good things. And when I reach a certain point, then he'll start saying yes to me. I think Jesus would say to these two people who have made him their last resort, when you and I make him our last, when we've tried everything we can, we've tried it all, nothing works. We are desperate. And we say to him, Jesus, Jesus. He doesn't care. He is so amazing. He's more than happy to be your last resort. He'd love to be your first resort. But he's happy to be your last resort. And lastly, sometimes it's hard for me to pray because there are things in my life I honestly don't know that I can give words to. I know, I know it's pain, I know that. Or it's deep sadness, or deep shame. There's a a verse in Romans, it says this, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans A little before that it says that all the things that God made and then all the things that went sideways it as if we just are groaning with that pain I don't have words for that In just a few moments we're going to have an opportunity to practice some nonverbal praying there will be a person here at the front. You don't have to say one thing to them, not one thing. If you just walk if you walk up to them, they'll put their hand on your shoulder and they'll pray for you. You don't have to tell them what to pray about. There's going to be a little station where there are some candles and a place to kneel. Lighting that candle can, can be a non-verbal prayer of anything that you want it to be. It's intention can be anything. You don't have to say a word. You can simply light a candle. You can light the candle and kneel. You can just kneel. You don't have to say anything. But you can do those things. And I love, I love what we experience today, the, the, what we call the sacraments in, in, in the church, that both of these, the baptism is a non-verbal prayer. And Rick said some things, and he explained some things. But that's not his talking. That's not what's happening. What's happening is a person is, is saying something that is beyond the ability to put into words. I've surrendered. I, I've given it. I'm, I'm, I'm dying, and I'm coming to life. I don't even know what you call that. And in communion when I take that piece of bread and, it, and Jesus said this is my body and it's broken for you remember me when you eat it remember what I did for you it doesn't take any words to remember this is my blood which was shed for you for the forgiveness of sins you, re, you don't have to say anything to him he knows that your sins have ruined your life And he says, I'll take care of that for you. To close, I want to try one nonverbal prayer. I want you to close your eyes if you wouldn't mind. You don't have to close your eyes to pray, but it might be helpful in this exercise. And I'd like for you to make a fist. Just, Just make a fist with your hands. And I want you to just think for a moment of that thing that hurts. It could be grief, it could be a mistake, it could be shame, it could be a longing. You don't have to say anything. I just want you to open your hands. Open your hands. Open your hands. Receive our open hands. our words to you.